The old pilot's plane tails. Flight 574 and the banning of Indonesia. It was New Year's Day 2007 and the 96 passengers booked on Adam Air Flight 574 from Java to Sulawesi boarded their Boeing 737-4Q8 for their two-hour trip. The airline had a habit of describing its aircraft as new, but this 737 had been manufactured 18 years previously and had flown with Danair, British Airways, GB Airways, Transaero, the WFBN TV station, Air One and Jet Airways before being taken on by the growing airline Adam Air. Seven years previously, the Indonesian government had adopted a policy of deregulation in the country's aviation industry, which had resulted in a boom of start-up airlines, many of which were low-cost carriers. This decision wasn't matched with an equivalent ramp-up of government supervision and control. The result was fierce commercial competition amongst the new airlines with little or no oversight. Unsurprisingly, the cost and corner-cutting that inevitably occurred resulted in a steep rise in accident and incident rates, which were often attributed to poor maintenance. Adamair was one such new airline, and it had been winning the race as Indonesia's fastest-growing low-cost carrier, although it offered a level of service that was a little above the bare-bones fare that was usually expected. Whilst the onboard service might have been good, behind the hangar doors things weren't quite so rosy. Its pilots repeatedly reporting deliberate breaches of safety regulations and they were frequently pressured into taking aircraft that were in a poor mechanical state. The Associated Press quoted one pilot as saying that every time he flew he had to fight with the ground staff and management about all the regulations you had to violate. He also said that pilots who confronted their seniors were usually grounded or docked pay. The list of safety misdemeanors was long. Personnel were required to sign documents to allow aircraft to fly while not having the authority to do so, knowing that the plane was not airworthy or both. Indeed, one aircraft flew illegally for months with a damaged door handle and another with a damaged window. Faulty parts were frequently swapped around the fleet to deliberately avoid mandatory repair deadlines, and pilots were ordered to exceed their legal limit of five flights a day. Most pilots who joined the airline when it formed soon left over safety concerns, and as a result they had a large and quick turnover of employees. Unaware of any of this, the passengers of Flight 574 climbed onto their aircraft, oblivious of the fact that the very aircraft they were boarding had been subject to numerous maintenance faults in its recent history. In the preceding few months, the captain's vertical speed indicator had been written up by the pilots 52 times, and the inertial navigation systems 51 times. Flight data recorder failures had received 14 complaints, 
has had the cockpit lights, autopilots, flight directors, instrument lights, and there were multiple other malfunctions which included sticking flaps and faults with the weather radar. The rectification of these failures mainly resulted in components being pulled out and pushed back in again, known as re-racking, the swapping of failed units with those on different aircraft, resetting circuit breakers, cleaning electrical contacts and replacement of relays. The crew of six who were operating the aircraft that day were led by 47-year-old Captain Referee Widodo and first officer Yoga Susanto both very recent to the company, but with good experience in the industry. The captain had over 13,000 hours, with 3,800 on type, and was flying the aircraft on that leg, whilst his first officer had 4,200 hours, with 1,000 hours on type, and was operating as the pilot monitoring. Behind them in the cabin were four cabin crew, and a passenger complement of mainly Indonesian nationals, but also an American family of three and a German. All appeared normal as the aircraft taxied out at Juanda Airport in Surabaya and took off into thick weather that extended up to 30,000 feet. It was due to land at San Maratilangi Airport in Manado at 1600 local time. The pilots reached 35,000 feet, which put them above the stormy weather below. Flight path was pretty much a straight line, but the crew commented on a strong crosswind over the Makassar Straits. It was at the halfway point, as the 737 was over the Java Sea, approaching the western coast of Sulawesi, that radar contact was lost, and the flight stopped responding to radio calls. No distress call had been made. Flight 574 had just disappeared. 3,600 police and army personnel were mobilised to search for the missing aircraft. Military aircraft with surveillance equipment, including infrared cameras from the Singapore Air Force, joined the search, as did a number of helicopters. The Indonesian Navy's sonar-equipped minesweepers were dispatched, and it deployed many remote submarines, but no trace of the Boeing could be found. The mountainous jungle terrain of Sulawesi and the poor weather with strong winds, low cloud and heavy rain hampered efforts, as did reports of unidentified distress beacons made by overflying aircraft, a Singaporean satellite and a local military base, none of which helped in locating the downed airliner. The search continued until the entire coastline of Sulawesi had been covered without a clue as to the whereabouts of the missing aircraft. Even relatives of missing passengers who had overflown and observed the tumultuous seas and rugged mountainous terrain agreed that the chances of finding the crash site were slim. Then pieces of wreckage began to be found by fishermen or were washed up onto beaches. Part of the right tailplane and wing were pulled from the sea, and passenger seats, life jackets, a food tray, a tyre, an ID card, and other small debris were recovered. In passenger clothing, and even a trace of hair from a headrest was found, but the crash location was still unknown. Then, two weeks after Flight 574 disappeared, a pair of Singaporean towed pinger locators arrived at the search area and were deployed by the US Navy reserve ship 
Mary Sears, which was assisting in the search. After a week of use, one of the locators picked up a signal from the underwater sonar transmitters attached to the flight recorder devices of the 737. They'd found the black boxes. After multiple sweeps of the area by the Mary Sears using its side-scan sonar, a wide area of wreckage was located 42 miles off the coast and confirmed to be all that was left of the crashed aircraft. However, at a depth of 2,000 metres, 6,600 feet, a senior Indonesian marine official said that he didn't believe the equipment required to retrieve the boxes from that depth was available in any Asian country. The search had already taken 24 days and the battery powering the underwater locator beacons was only guaranteed to last 30 days. After 33 days, the families of those lost travelled out on boats and threw flowers onto the waters over the remains of their loved ones. By now the Mary Sears had withdrawn on other duties and an unseemly argument began over the cost of recovering the flight and voice recorders and who would pay. Vice President of Indonesia, Yusef Kala, went so far as to question the need to retrieve the black boxes at all. As the squabbles went on, the signal from the black boxes faded as the batteries were exhausted. But finally, seven months later, Adam Air signed a contract with a civilian company which had the underwater equipment capable of recovering the vital data boxes. Despite the difficult conditions and the fact that the boxes had moved some distance from their original locations in strong currents, near the end of August, a Phoenix International underwater robot scouring the seabed found and recovered them both. Six months later, the findings of the inquiry were published, with both the voice and flight data recordings available. A firm conclusion was swiftly determined. Soon into the flight, one of the aircraft's inertial reference systems began to drift excessively, to the point where the Yujung air traffic controller exclaimed, Where is Adam direct to? My God, he's flying north. Their heading should have been 070, east-northeast. Throughout the final 45 minutes of the flight, the two pilots had been trying to solve the inaccuracy of their navigation system to the point where they had become engrossed in the problem. It was one that, had they followed their quick reference handbook correctly or had sufficient system knowledge, could have been promptly solved and there were plenty of alternative navigation aids available to them. To quote the inquiry, their actions to rectify the problem resulted in a number of decision errors. For the last 13 minutes, they concentrated on their problem with minimal regard to other requirements. In their attempts to rectify the fault, they selected the number 2 IRS away from navigate mode to attitude. This action had several repercussions, the most important being it disconnected the autopilot. All the time the autopilot had been engaged, it had been holding a little left aileron to counter a tendency for this aircraft to slowly roll right. On disconnection, 
the control wheel centered, and without that input, the aircraft began to gently bank right at between 1 and 4 degrees a second, well below the rate needed for our balance organs to detect. Still engaged in trying to fix the IRS system, the crew seemed not to have noticed the autopilot disconnect horn blaring, nor the annunciation of bank angle, bank angle, bank angle, bank angle, as the aircraft rolled past 35 degrees to the right. Their preoccupation with the IRS malfunction allowed them both to lose situational awareness, and even after they reached 100 degrees of bank and 60 degrees of nose-down pitch, with the overspeed warning clacking, they didn't roll wings level before attempting to pull out of the dive. By pitching the aircraft, all they achieved was to tighten the descending spiral that they had found themselves in. With a descent rate that peaked at over 52,000 feet per minute, an indicated speed that reached 490 knots and a Mach of over 0.92, their attempts to pull the aircraft up resulted in a G-force of 3.5 Gs, considerably more than the airframe could cope with. At around 10,000 feet, there was the sound of two loud thumps as the aircraft structure failed and the flight load went rapidly from plus 3.5 to minus 2.8 g as the aircraft broke up, and the recorder ceased operating. In a mitigation, it appeared that Adamair didn't bother to train its crews in IRS failures, and despite a worldwide effort to improve pilot training in jet upsets, they had failed to include that training either. The repercussions of this crash went well beyond the tragedy felt by the bereaved and the airframe lost to the airline. It drew into question the whole ethos behind the control of Indonesia's airlines. As the layers were peeled back, it became obvious that the system was broken. It was revealed that the previous year a similar problem had left one of Adam Air's aircraft meandering lost over the ocean for more than three hours, when they eventually saw land, they put the aircraft down safely, but still had no idea where they were. The airline claimed the aircraft to be in good working order and had the pilots arrested on charges of endangering passenger safety, but Indonesia's Director General of Air Communications wasn't convinced. He told Adam Air to fix the aircraft, and they insisted they fly 13 test flights with inspectors on board. Instead, Adamair stranded the DGAC team when they took off without them, and returned the aircraft to service without any inspection. The Director General of Air Transportation said the incident was a serious violation, and promised a full investigation, of which there is absolutely no record. Allegations of corruption abounded, particularly after another Adam Air 737 landed with such force at Surabaya that the fuselage broke and the tail section collapsed. Then another skidded off the end of the runway at Batam, causing major damage. The airline was again severely criticised when the crew on board mishandled the emergency evacuation by failing to deploy any slides. 
one of the airline's co-founders, came under very close scrutiny since the businessman was also the Speaker of Indonesia's House of Representatives. Finally, the Indonesian government started to take action by replacing many at the Transportation Ministry, including the Directors of Air and Sea Transport and the Chair of the Committee for Safety. They banned Indonesian airlines from operating aircraft more than 10 years old and introduced a three-level system of safety ranking, advising 15 airlines in the lowest rank that their licenses would be revoked in three months unless they made major changes. No airline was in the top rank, which indicated no serious issues. Somehow, Adam Air moved up a rank and survived, but five others were shut down and five more grounded. Regardless, the word was out now, and the FAA downgraded Indonesia's air safety category from a 1 to a 2 and warned all US citizens to avoid using Indonesian airlines. Then, in 2007, both the United States and the European Union banned all of Indonesia's airlines from operating into Europe or the USA, a ban that was only completely lifted in 2018. As for Adam Air, it struggled on until June 2008 when the government revoked its air operator certificate and the airline closed down. Prior to its demise, the company's owner, Sandra Ang, was accused of embezzling the company's money of approximately 210 million US dollars. She was later arrested. I've talked in previous tales about the dangers of distraction from a pilot's primary duty, that of flying the aircraft. The inquiry came to the same conclusion when they wrote, the crew became distracted. The dangers of this fact have been highlighted in accidents such as the Eastern Airlines Lockheed L-1011 Miami, Florida on the 29th of December 1972 that crashed when the crew became preoccupied with a landing gear warning light. Flight 574 was yet another lesson on how important avoiding distraction is. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast and available on all good podcasting apps. If you want to help the stories along, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And many thanks for listening.